0: Proverbs chapter number 18, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 16. Proverbs chapter number 18, verse number 16, the Word of God says this, A man's gift maketh room for him, bringeth him before great men. He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. The lot causeth contentions to cease, and parteth between the mighty. A brother offended... It's harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You and thank You for this opportunity to be in Your house. I pray that the holy, inspired Word of God would uh, be wielded by the Spirit of God this morning, and that He would do a work in our hearts that would bring forth fruit eternal and glory unto Your Son. Lord, I pray for those, my heart is heavy, that are uh, infirmed, that are facing sicknesses, Lord. Some of it's touched even my own family. Lord, we know You're faithful. We know that You have a plan. And so, God, we commit ourselves, our care, and our loved ones unto You, and just pray that You'd be glorified in the entirety of the situation. Pray for those that are traveling, Lord. Uh, There may be some even wayward. But Father, you know exactly where each and every one of us are at. We've not escaped your sight. So I just pray that you'd work effectually in our hearts and lives this morning. Lord, we love you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as you study the book of Proverbs... There is sort of an impression, I think, that most people have of the book of Proverbs that is partially deserved and and partially, I think, is a misnomer. The very name of the book, Proverbs, uh, denotes the fact that this is a collection of maxims, of sayings that are divinely inspired, given of God, pinned down, most of them by Solomon, and are delivered unto us, and they bear in them the signature of wisdom. Uh, I've heard it said before, and I believe this is true, that even a lost man could apply many of the things found in the book of Proverbs, and it would prosper his life in many areas and in many ways. But I think there is a danger sometimes in in considering the book of Proverbs to be sort of a a theological potpourri, if you will. Sort of just a, a, a smattering of disconnected truths, that though they are all true and connected in that they're true, that there is no central theme that runs through them. And I've found, as I've studied the book of Proverbs, that that's simply not so. Now, oftentimes, if we'll look a little closer in a passage, we'll find that there is a deep connectedness of the text with the context. Uh, Let me give you just a basic uh, uh, Bible study rule. Context is king. Uh, If you want to understand a passage better, read the chapter before and the chapter after. Uh, The context will always enlighten and enliven the text for you. And as you read through the book of Proverbs, I think there's a great danger in divorcing the text from the context and not reading the surrounding passages. As you read through the book of Proverbs, you will find that on four different occasions, Solomon used an analogy, all of them using the same illustration, but all of them, or almost all of them, teach very different spiritual truths. Now, let me tell you something. I, I, I get the news like everybody does. I'm aware of everything going on in our country. I sort of joked to my wife this morning, I, I've never been a headline preacher, at least I don't think so anyways. And I always endeavor to be preaching the Bible, not the newspaper. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, But in doing that, uh, this message, I could show you uh, that the beginnings of this message started six, seven months ago, and often God will do that. He'll give me a seed thought, and, uh, and, and then He'll just let it percolate. And I promise you this message, and as we preach it, you'll find out it ain't got nothing to do with anything going on in the headlines today. But I will tell you that this morning I'm preaching on walls. Somebody say amen to that. I am. And uh, it's got nothing to do with what's going on down on the border, got nothing to do with the shutdown or the funding and all the fussing that the politicians are doing. But on four occasions, Solomon used an illustration of what he called a strong city or a walled city. And he used them to illuminate spiritual truths relating to your life and mine. You know, a walled city is a strong city. And uh, always has been throughout human history. About the only way you could defeat a walled city was to lay siege to it. You could try to breach the wall and tear it down. But oftentimes that was an impossibility because it ain't easy to do that with folks shooting bows and arrows from the top of it down at you. And so it was a great challenge and it was a great victory to overthrow a walled city. In fact, that's one of the reasons, one of the first miracles that God uh, provided and performed for the children of Israel when they got into the land of Canaan is He cast down a walled city, the city of Jericho. So in ancient times, and this is true even today, a walled city is a strong city. And what is Solomon endeavoring to teach us in using this illustration? I'll read you the verse that we read in the opening uh, a passage, but we'll be preaching from a few different places in Proverbs. But he says in verse 19 of chapter 18, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. I'll read you another one that's found in the book of Proverbs that we're going to touch on today. It's found in chapter number twenty-five, and we'll spend a little time there later. But uh, it says down in uh, verse number twenty eight He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Back in chapter number 18, uh, back in verse uh, number, I believe, uh, 11, or excuse me, not verse number 11, let me find it here. Uh, in verse number, yes, verse 11, it says, "...the rich man's wealth is his strong city, and as an high wall in his own conceit." As Solomon gives these illustrations, he likens, if I can say it this way, "...the will of man to a walled city." The will of man to a walled city. I've met people in my life that were strong-willed. You ever met anybody like that? Stubborn, pig-headed. Some of you wives can say amen to that. Stubborn, pig-headed, strong-willed. I've met hey man. I've met people on the other side that were weak-willed, people that could not withstand anything that they came in to opposition against. And I believe as we read these passages, we're going to find that Solomon doesn't necessarily say a wall is a good thing or a bad thing, but rather he points to the fact that a wall, or we could say this, the will of man, can be used to great benefit when subjected to the Lord and His Word, or it can be used to great detriment when used by the devil to disrupt and destroy the life of a person. There is a place for having a strong will. You and I would not be sitting in a free country today without some strong-willed men being willing to fight and to stand. But by the same token, there's people that are sitting in hell this morning because they couldn't get through their strong will. And I want us to look at three passages I told you he mentioned it four times, and I'll let you know what that fourth time is. It's in chapter 10, but it goes along with what's said in verse 11 of chapter 18. But three occasions, basically, that Solomon points to a walled city or a strong city and teaches us a spiritual truth. And here's what I want to say. There are some walls that need to be broken down in our lives. There are some walls that need to be built up in our lives. And then sadly for a lot of us, there are some walls in the lives of others that we need to breach to try to reach them and to be a help to them. Look with me at verse number 10 of chapter 18. Solomon says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Then he says, the rich man's wealth is his strong city, and as an high wall in his own conceit. He says, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Again, as we think of the walls around a city as being the will of man, I would say this, that Solomon first points to a wall that needs to be broken down. And that is the wall or the will of man that keeps him from depending wholly upon the Lord. I'll tell you this right now, uh, one of the hardest types of people in the world to win to Christ is someone that is self-sufficient, self-reliant. Oftentimes, those that are independently wealthy, those that are have made it their own way, those that are, we might say, their own man or a self-made man, oftentimes, those are the hardest people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you very simply why. Because they don't think they need anybody or anything. Let me tell you something. You've heard this before that heaven is only filled with bad people and hell is only filled with good people. That the only folks in heaven are those that have been willing to acknowledge their sinfulness and cast themselves on the Lord. And those that are in hell are there because they thought there's good enough to get to heaven. By the same token, let me say this, that uh, those that got to hell got to hell on their own. And anybody that got to heaven, got to heaven by the grace of God. Solomon gives us three important truths here. I want you to think with me for a moment about the refuge of the righteous. He describes first those that know the Lord and what the Lord is and means to them. verse 10, he says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. I think this is such a fitting description of the salvation that we receive in the Lord Jesus Christ, because it pictures a man that is fleeing some peril, that is fleeing some danger, that is wholly vulnerable, wholly incapable of saving himself, and finds only one hope in life. As he looks across whatever the scenery is that he's running upon, he sees a strong tower, a fortress, a place of protection, a place where he can be shielded from what's around him. And instead of trying to stop and build his own shelter, instead of trying to stop and say, well, I'll probably be all right after all, instead of trying to turn around and fight and try to make his own way, he instead sees that refuge, runs as hard and fast as he can to get up underneath it because he knows there and there alone is his only hope. I'll tell you this right now, though there are varying circumstances around which people get saved. When I was saved it probably wasn't the same weather going on outside as when you saved. It probably wasn't the same day of the month, probably wasn't the same year. Uh the day that I was saved is wholly unique. Uh, in my life, uh, separate probably from your testimony in any way, shape, fashion, or form, but there are some commonalities when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this, every person that's ever been born again has had the same experience as this man that is described in verse number 10. Uh, recognize that, listen, it's not a matter of whether they're doing good or bad. The wrath of God abides on them already. There is a present imminent threat. Listen, a person don't have to do anything to die and go to hell. They can do nothing and die in their sins and go to hell. They don't have to earn hell. They've already earned hell by den in and nature of their uh, spirit and of their person and of their condition and of their situation. I think a lot of times, 90% of soul winning is just showing a person why they deserve to die and go to hell in the first place. Because we've been conditioned in society today to believe that we're just alright and we're good and we're perfect. We've been raised by a generation uh, of people who everybody on the team got a trophy. Amen? And nobody ever did anything wrong. We've been raised in a generation that has preached this idea of affirmation as being the main focus of building a person's character and spirit. And so we've got generations of people that have been raised being told that they're all right. Then all of a sudden, here comes the Word of God and says, there's none righteous, no, not one. Here comes the Word of God and says, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And this is a new message to the ears of today's generation. And they say, well, I don't understand. Mom always told me I was perfect. The counselors at school always told me I was perfect. The people on TV always told me if I just dreamed hard enough. Then here comes the Word of God with a crashing dose of reality and says, no, you're not good on your own. You're not on your way to heaven. You're not okay. You are lost and undone and in danger." of hellfire this is so radical it is so contrary to what's been preached to them since they were in diapers but for a person to ever become born again they got to recognize they're not okay they're not okay in the situation they're in naturally Now listen if you've been saved by the grace of god you don't need to be saved over and over and over again because when god does something he does it perfect and right the first time but if you've never called upon the name of the Lord, if you've never ran into that high tower, if you've never taken refuge in the grace of God, then I am here to tell you today, uh, despite what it may make you feel, it may hairlip lip you and every other person in town, but the reality is, if you've never been saved, if you've never called upon God, if you've never cast yourself upon Him, if you've never run into that high tower, then you're in peril. You're in danger. You're on your way to hell. The only thing that can save you is that name of the Lord, which is a high tower. Hey, there's none other name given among men under heaven whereby you must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And the righteous man is righteous because he's recognized that he was unrighteous and that he could not save himself. Safety only lies in the high tower. You've got to get up under that name. You've got to get up under the name that's above every name. Uh, You've got to allow your old man, yourself, your flesh, your wickedness, your sin to be applied to his name and his righteousness to be applied to your name. The righteous, the Bible says, runneth into it and is safe. He speaks of the refuge of the righteous, but then he speaks of the refuge of the rich. And I want to be very clear with what I say here. Look at verse 11. He says, the rich man's wealth. Now remember, we said, don't divorce the text from the context. He just got through saying, for the righteous man, their refuge is the name of the Lord. They're not depending on anything else. They're not depending on their church membership or their baptism or their work in charity or how much they give uh, to God's work. They're not depending on their own good works. They're not depending upon uh, their pedigree. The righteous man is righteous because he's ran into the name of the Lord like a high tower. He has called upon the Lord to save him. Then he says, the rich man, on the other hand, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. The, uh, and he says, and as a an high wall in his own conceit. I told you a moment ago that there is one more instance of Solomon using an analogy. But it is so similar that I wanted to give it to you when we came to this point. Listen to what it says in Proverbs ten fifteen. There Solomon says, the rich man's wealth is his strong city he just got through saying that here. But listen to how he closes the verse. He says, the destruction of the poor is their poverty. Now remember, the book of Proverbs is a practical book. That's why I told you even a lost person could apply many of the principles found in the book of Proverbs and it would prosper their life. And one of the things that Solomon had observed, and anybody with open eyes and an honest mind can recognize this in society, that most of the time being rich is a help to you. Most of the time, being poor is a detriment. Who was it that said this? There ain't no handsome homeless people. You ever heard that? The fact of the matter is this. There is a practical advantage to riches. Let me say, it's not a sin to be rich. It's not wrong to be wealthy. There's been lots of people God has blessed with wealth and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. They shouldn't apologize for it. They shouldn't be guilted about it. Uh, they shouldn't feel like they have to uh, support the, the uh, lives or, or the mistakes of all of society. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy, nothing wrong with being rich. Solomon himself was one of the wealthiest men ever to have lived. He recognized, though, that that wealth was a shield to him. Hey, there are certain folks who couldn't ever get Solomon. Why? Because they couldn't get through his armed guards. They couldn't get into his palace. They couldn't get across the grounds. He was shielded from the consequences in many ways of life by wealth. After all, that's what most of us are striving for. If we're desiring to make a better life for our children and our children after them, we're desiring to create a comfortable situation because there is a practical advantage in riches. By the same token, there is a uh, disadvantage in poverty. Uh, Listen, and I'm not up here uh, preaching on social warfare, uh, class warfare any more than I'm preaching on walls on the Mexican border. But I will simply say this, that it is a great disadvantage to not have money. Anybody say amen to that? I find myself inconvenienced by it quite often. And it is that practical advantage that is so dangerous. Because it's something that in and of itself is not wrong. And there is a benefit, and it is natural for a man to desire a comfortable situation. But lay this in juxtaposition to the verse in chapter 18. Solomon says, listen, I know riches are a good thing. I know wealth is an enjoyable thing. I know what it's like to be able to enjoy the fruit of your labors and to be able to be put in a comfortable, safe, secure situation. And the danger in that is that a man will grow to trust in that instead of trusting in the Lord. See, there's a practical advantage to riches but because of that there is a perilous allurement to riches as well it says in the rich man instead of depending on the lord's name as a high tower he runs into his riches and takes refuge in them and i'm reminded i can't help but think about a young man that came to jesus in the book of mark is found in other gospels the bible calls him the rich young ruler And this young man, he evidently was a religious man. He had all sorts of religious training. He was wealthy. He seemed to have the world by the tail. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what can I do to deserve to go to heaven? So the Lord answered him honestly. He said, keep all the commandments. Live perfectly. Live sinlessly. And he said, have you kept all the commandments? The young man lied. I don't know if he willfully lied. But what he said was not the truth, whether he knew it or not. He said, all of these have I kept from my youth up. Amen. So I've never done anything wrong. <laughs> never done anything wrong. Only a kid could give that answer, amen? My, we'll be sitting at home, my little boy, there'll be some big loud bang, crash. We'll go into the room and we'll say, what'd you do? He'll say, nothing. <laughs> nothing. What do you mean nothing? Something happened in here. What do you mean nothing? Only a kid could give that. He says, I've done nothing. I've kept all these for my youth up. And the Lord then says this, One thing thou lackest. Young man, there's one thing keeping you from knowing the Lord. There's one thing that towers in importance and and preeminence in your life above everything else. He says, Sell what thou hast, give to the poor, take up thy cross and follow me. Now, a lot of people have misread and misinterpreted that verse to think that that means charity will purchase some favor with God. But that's not what the Lord says. The Lord says one thing you're lacking. What was missing in His life? What was missing was taking up the cross and following the Lord. That's what He needed. But here's what the Lord understood. That as long as He was tethered to His worldly wealth, He would never have that one thing He lacked. He said, Preacher... Why are people on their way to hell? Because they're sinners. They're not on their way to hell because they're drunkards or because they're homosexuals. or uh, They're not on their way to hell because they're liars. They're not on their way to hell because they're murderers or thieves. All that is merely a product of their depraved condition. Your sins would have sent you to hell, just like their sins would have sent them to hell. The reason they die and go to hell is not because they're a sinner. Because sin has already been addressed on Calvary. The reason they die and go to hell is not because of what they do, but because of what they've not done. It's not what they have, it's what they lack. They lack a saving knowledge through Jesus Christ. They've never been born again. Uh, Nobody has to die and go to hell because of sin. Jesus paid the price for sin. The reason they die and go to hell is because they reject Him who is their only hope. But there are a lot of folks that the motivating factor behind their rejection of Him is there is something, oftentimes some one thing. For this young man, it was his wealth. For some people, it's family relationship. For some people, it's some sin that has become rooted in their life. For some people, it is merely pride, not willing to bow the knee. But for most people, there's at least one thing, sometimes more, but oftentimes it boils down to something some one thing. And that's not the reason they're going to hell, but it is the reason they won't call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and get the one thing that they lack. The rich man, it's his wealth oftentimes. That's why the Lord said that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And they said, well, Lord, then it's impossible. And the Lord said, no, (laughs) with God all things are possible. God can so cripple their pride that they'll call upon the name of the Lord. But that thing has to be addressed. And I'd ask you this question this morning. What is it in your life that would be so valuable to you that you'd die and go to hell over it? For the rich man, oftentimes it's his wealth. Not for all of them, but for many of them. What's the requirement? Look at verse 12. What can can fix this? The Lord says before destruction the heart of man is haughty, then he says, and before honor is humility. How's the rich man going to get out of that situation? Well, he's going to have to swallow his pride, recognize that his riches may buy him a lot of things in this world, but it cannot buy him favor with God, and quit depending upon that wall, that strong city, and instead run into the name of the Lord, which is a high tower. The only way, listen, whatever it is in your life that you're dependent on, preacher, what can I do? Cast down that idol. Quit depending on that, whatever it is, or quit living for that, whatever it is, and instead run into the name of the Lord. Lord, I can't save myself, I can't fix myself. I'm so irreparably broken, my wound is incurable, but for the grace of God, I'm going to die in my sins. Lord, I don't depend on myself. I like what old B.R. Lakin used to say. He used to say that when he went to the altar, he said, Lord, do for me what I cannot do for myself. I think that's good language. You ain't got to say it like that, but I don't believe it'll hurt you to. Lord, I cannot do this. And nothing that I can do can remedy my situation. So, Lord, I call upon you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I confess myself a sinner. I ask you to forgive me and save me. Run into the name of the Lord, which is a high tower. So we see a wall that needs to be broken down. Turn over to chapter 25. I find another kind of wall in the book of Proverbs. Chapter number 25, and we'll begin at verse 23. We read down to verse 28. Solomon observed a few things. He said, The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. It's better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman and in a wide house. As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. The righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. It is not good to eat much honey, so for men to search their own glory is not glory. Then he says, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. If the first passage we read showed us a wall that must be broken down, and that is the human will that refuses to bow before the Lord, then this passage in chapter 25 presents to us a wall that needs to be built up if we're ever going to be used of the Lord. You know, I, I, I mentioned early on in the message that the human will is a fixture of our nature. We were created with a will. If you don't believe that, read Genesis 3 over again. If mankind was not uh, created with free will, then how did Adam and Eve choose to eat of the fruit in the Garden of Eden? It is the will of God and it is to the glory of God that man does have free will. I believe in the free will and free agency of man. I believe if a man's going to know God, he must choose to know God. And I believe that any man that wants to know God through the light and glorious testimony of the Gospel can choose to do so. I believe in the free will and free agency of man. I believe in individual soul liberty. I don't believe these are bad things. I believe often our flesh wields them against the Lord and builds a wall that God through His grace and mercy must tear down. But I do believe that the human will can be something that's used for God's glory. And Solomon describes here a person who we might say has no willpower. Their life is devoid of any discipline, of any resolve, and of any control. And he says that that man is like a city that is broken down and without walls. What would that look like? Well, I believe, as we said, don't divorce the text from the context... That Solomon mentions a few things that describe a person that has no rule over his own spirit. Look at verse number twenty three He says, "The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance." A backbiting tongue. The image that Solomon is putting before us, he says the same way that that wind can come in and flush out those rain clouds and push back the rain uh, from the landscape, that's the same way that you need to meet the person that comes to you with gossip. person comes to you with gossip. I'll tell you, a lot of us are going to have a lot to answer for one day. And we're going to say, well, the Lord, I didn't partake in any gossip, but we'll have to humbly admit that we did permit gossip. The Lord says the easiest way to stop somebody from gossiping is to tell them you ain't interested in that, that you have no desire to hear that, and that if they have a problem, they ought to take it up with whoever they're gossiping about. He says that's how you deal with gossip. An angry countenance... Part of the reason, listen, it might be if everybody's always gossiping to you, you might be. They might believe you're a ready uh, receptacle of it. That's all right. Me and Derek be up here just preaching. It might be you enjoy it so much that they just keep coming back. Now, listen, I'm not trying to be cruel. Sometimes there are some of us in life that just find ourselves as being the receptacle of people's drama. I signed up for that when I got into ministry. But the truth of the matter is this, we could do a lot to stop that if we just made people understand that we ain't interested in that. Because most of the time, what people want when they give you a little gossip is they want a little in return. I would say this, that Solomon pictures here what it looks like when the tongue is uncontrolled. Uncontrolled tongue. Uh, James said this, that if a man can bridle his tongue, he can bridle his whole body. There's a lot of us, listen, we're trying to lose weight, we're trying to fix our health, we're trying to fix our family, we're trying to fix every problem that we've got. If we'd start by trying to harness our tongue, we'd get a lot farther. The tongue, if we master it, we've got everything else mastered. Because no man can tame the tongue. You get that controlled, you'd be surprised what else it'll control. He mentions when the tongue is uncontrolled. Verse number 24, he says this, Men, I'm just going to warn you, that there are appropriate times to say amen in the church house. And I love every amen I get, but just at, at, at your benefit, it might be best to let the women say amen here. Solomon says it's better to dwell in the corner of the housetop. There's a lot of them, that's where they're dwelling. Than with a brawling woman and in a wide house. Hey, listen. I I know the Lord. I know the Lord. I know where I'm going when I die. I'm not worried a bit about preaching this. But I would just point this out simply. That what Solomon says is absolutely true. There's a great price for peace of mind and peace of home. But... If verse number 23 presents to us what it looks like when the tongue is uncontrolled, I believe that verse 24 presents to us what it looks like when the temper is unconstrained. There is a way in which our temper can be yoked to God's cause and be used for great good. The Lord was angry in the temple and drove out the money changers. And the commandment is not to not be angry, but to be angry and sin not. But when the temper is out of control, when the temper, I I could have preached against women, now I'm preaching against men, ain't I? Maybe some women too. When the temper is out of control, it's a good indication that nothing else is in control either. He mentions when the temper is unconstrained. Look with me at verse number 26. He says this, a righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. The image that Solomon gives here is of a person that is righteous, but is faced with great opposition from the wicked. We've been teaching in, a verse, or in Daniel chapter 3 in our Sunday school class, and we've been talking about the wave of secular humanism that's pervasive over society, and how that it, it, that there's a great truth found in Daniel chapter 3, because when there was a wave of pagan worship flowing over the land of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow before the golden image. And we are facing a day very similar, my friend. We were talking this morning about how they made the statement to Nebuchadnezzar. They said, hey, listen, uh, if it be the Lord's will, then the God whom we serve is able to deliver us. He will deliver us from your hand. But they said, but if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not bow down nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They said this, it may cost us our lives, but it won't cost us our testimony. We won't bow no matter what. The reason is because they understood that for however many years they had been serving in high office, whatever good that they had done, none of it would mean anything if they had bowed before the image. They would have just been another follower, sheep, worshiper of a pagan god. They said no matter what it costs us, it is absolutely imperative that we do not bow. I believe what Solomon is... Dreaming of and imagining and and writing here is a person that chooses to bow. That does not withstand against the flow and force of wickedness. I believe he's pouring into us what happens when terror is unconquered. Let me tell you something there are a lot of things to be afraid of in this world, and some of them are worse than others. I listen, it's a fearful thing to have to lose your job for your testimony. But it's a worse thing to lose your testimony for your job. Hey, it's it, 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 it's a fearful thing to fall into ill favor with your friends. But it's also a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We got some hard choices in this day, and we better be willing to make them. Because he describes a person who allows his fear and his terror and his anxiety to bow him below before the wicked, and he says that person is like a a troubled fountain, like a corrupt spring. Once that's happened, you can't drink anything else out of the fountain. Once a person has compromised their testimony, nothing that comes after it is ever going to have the weight and force that it would have had they stood. He gives one more analogy here. Look at verse 27. He says, it's not good for to eat much honey, so for men to search their own glory is not glory. I, I wrote it this way. He said, this is what happens when tribute is unconvincing. What I mean by that is this. You know, there's nothing wrong with eating honey. In fact, honey has a very positive connotation all through Scripture. And honey has a lot of good properties. If you're uh, one of those that gets tired of just taking medicine all the time, you'd be surprised what honey can do just if you got a common cold or sinus infection. It has a lot of antibodies in it and it has a, a healing effect. Honey is not a bad thing, but you can't live on honey. You can't live on honey. It doesn't have enough substance to keep you alive. In the same way, he says this, there's a place for men to receive glory. There's a time for men to receive glory. It's not altogether wrong for men to receive glory. But if men are receiving glory, that they're not due. And if they're uh, if the only praise that they ever receive is the praise they heap upon themselves, then he says it's not a good thing. There's some folks, listen, uh, the most important person in their entire life, uh, can be described in one letter. I. I. All about me, all about what I do, all about how good I am. Listen, there's times you got to defend your own honor. I understand that. And certainly we shouldn't be afraid to speak truth when we're uh, being uh, cast in, in an untruthful light. But there's a lot of things that are better left unsaid or better left said by somebody else. He describes these different illustrations and Then he says this in verse 28, He that hath no rule over his own spirit, like a city that is broken down without walls. He says two things about this, and I want you to notice the ruin of the city in verse number 28. He says first that this city is broken down. When I think of the word broken down, I think of an inward dysfunction. There are some things, for instance, the old Roman Empire had lots of forces that outwardly were pushing against it, But really what led primarily to the fall of the Roman Empire was an inward dysfunction. It merely ceased to function and operate in the proper way. Uh, There are literally cities in this country, uh, and there's a lot of things I could say about why they're in this situation, but there are cities in our country that have literally just become dysfunctional. Their power grids are breaking down. People have moved out in droves. You can buy homes uh, for less than you could buy a used car. Their water systems don't function anymore. They have just broken down. It wasn't because an enemy invaded them. It was because they followed bad policies. It was because they voted the wrong kind of people in. It was because they... They made foolish decisions, and they just broke down from the inside out. A person that has no rule over his own spirit, the first symptom of it is going to be an inward dysfunction. As we already said, man is created with a will for a reason. And for the benefit of our spiritual and mental health, it is absolutely imperative that we have at least, uh, not, not an uncontrolled will, but a strong will that is controlled by the Lord. If we don't have any discipline, if we just live our lives by whatever impulse happens to uh, flood its way through our body, then pretty soon we'll grow miserable and unhappy. Man is created and designed to live for the glory of God when he does not have that purpose. That's part of the reason society's going crazy right now. Is because we have for a hundred years preached a sort of a secular humanistic atheistic, atheistic nihilism. We've told people there's no meaning in life. They finally believed it and it's destroyed them. Man's created to live with purpose. And that purpose is to be lived in, in, in service and for the glory of God a man that hath no rule over his own spirit, it will begin with an inward dysfunction. But then I see an outward dilapidation. Once you start to break down inwardly, it won't be long before you start to break down outwardly. This happens all the time. People go through a time of uh, depression and discouragement and misery. Maybe they make some decisions uh, after that has happened that they shouldn't have, but it's not long before their whole life begins to crumble. Uh, Go sometime and uh, walk down some of the streets in Knoxville and talk to some of the addicts, uh, some of the drunks, some of the people whose lives is in pieces. And we like to think that all of them are there because they have mental health problems. That is true for a lot of them. But there's a lot of them you can go down and talk to that at one time were more high-functioning than you or me, but they made a wrong decision. They turned the wrong direction. They took refuge in the wrong thing instead of taking it in the Lord. And it wasn't long before their entire life crumbled. Listen, every drunk, every addict that you see was once a mother's son that very likely was held in a bosom and loved and took care of. But they made the wrong decision. They had no rule over their own spirit. I've got about 40 more minutes of preaching, but I don't think you've got about 40 more minutes of listening. So I'll give you this one point. Come back tonight, I'll maybe give you the third one in a message. But let me say this. We see in this passage the renegade spirit and the ruin of the city. But I think if we look close, we'll find the remedy for the situation. Now, some people, secular psychology would say you need to muster the ability to control your own will. A lot of folks and self-help folks would say, well, you just need to commit yourself to a life of rigor and of discipline. And that's sort of like telling a sick person they just need to will themselves to be better. The fact is, there are some folks who just need a little order in their life. But let me say this, that what man needs at the very heart of it has nothing to do with their own will. of what it says in verse 25. I'm just going to let the Bible preach it. Verse 25. Now, reading this casually, this might have struck you as odd. It did me for a long time. But in the overall context, here's a man with no rule over his own spirit. Here's a man whose life is falling to pieces because he has no will. He has no discipline. He does not have the right kind of self-determination. What can fix him? Verse 25 says this, As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. You know, once a city is in the kind of shape that Solomon talks about here, they're completely helpless to fix their own condition. The only hope they have is that some ally, some help might ride in from a far country. Uh, some reinforcements can come and fight the enemy back and give them enough room to rebuild, to fortify themselves once again. Can I say this to you this morning? What you need ain't going to come from within. It's going to come from a far country. (laughs) The Bible says, "...as cold waters to a thirsty soul." You know, it's interesting. You'll find that water, over and over again in the Bible, is always representative of two things. When it's used as a washing agent... It's always a picture of the Word of God. For instance, Christ said, Now are ye clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. And the Bible says we are to be washed with the Word of God and that we are to cleanse ourselves. Uh, uh, David said in Psalms 119, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according unto thy Word. When it's used as a washing thing, it's the Word of God. But over and over again, from John chapter number 4, Isaiah chapter number 12, you can go over into the book of Revelation, and you'll find that every time that water is spoken of as a resource for drinking, for nourishment, for hydration, it's always a picture of the Spirit of God. You remember whenever the woman at the well, the Lord Jesus was witnessing to her, and He said, listen, you need a drink of water. She said, I got all the water I need. I got a bucket. I got a well. He said, that ain't the kind of water that I'm talking about. He said, you drink of the water that I give you, and it'll become your well of water springing up into life everlasting. What was He talking about? In John chapter number 7, at the great feast day, uh, when the Passover was taking place, He cried out and said, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come and drink. And John said, this, this spake ye of the Spirit which was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. Isaiah chapter number 12 says that the believer is to drink with joy, or draw with joy water out of the wells of salvation. In the book of Revelation it says that everyone that is a thirst, let him come and let him drink. The book of Isaiah also says in chapter number 55, everyone that hath no money, let him come and buy bread without price. Let him come and get water without price. Uh, When water is a drinking thing, It is always associated with the Spirit of God. Now stop and think about it. Solomon says, here's this man like a ruinous city. His life's a mess. He can't fix himself. If he could fix himself, he probably would never broke himself. He needs something from another country. He needs help from on high. And the only way that he can ever get control of his Spirit is to put it under subjection to God's Spirit. Solomon, when he pins this, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, wasn't a theological reality. Solomon would have no knowledge of the idea of God's Spirit inhabiting us. But you and I as New Testament believers know this, that every single born-again believer, the Spirit of God, takes up residence in their life. Christ said, He'll be with you forever. Uh, This is the fulfillment of uh, the promise that was given in the Old Testament, reiterated in Hebrews chapter number 13, let your conversation be without covetousness. For as much as it is written, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The Spirit of God never leaves the believer. And so what you need is not to will yourself to be fixed. What you need is not just more discipline. What you need is not a New Year's resolution. You need a drink of water from another country. You've got to take your spirit and bring it under subjection to God's Spirit. Preacher, how do I do that? One decision at a time. You're busy trying to fix your whole year. God's busy trying to fix your next day. The next decision, bring it under subjection to the leading of God's Spirit. What after that? Then do it again. What after that? Then do it again. What after that? Then do it again. As a believer, if we're not being Spirit-led, then we're not being led in the right way. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, Paul said, they are the sons of God. And too many of us have made a mess of our lives by trying to lead ourselves. The same way that the rich man tries to take refuge in his riches and finds no help there, we try to take re- refuge in our resolve and find no help there. What you need is not Just more self-resolve. What you need is not more determination. What you need is to submit yourself. Swallow your pride and submit yourself to the Spirit of God. Let Him lead you in your life.